Hello and welcome to The Conversation. I am your host, Nando Vila, and I'm very excited to be here today because we have two excellent guests for you, starting with Mark Rank. Mark is a professor of social welfare at, the, at Washington University and the author of Poorly Understood. Mark is one of the foremost experts on poverty in America, inequality, and social justice. Very excited to talk to him because I don't know. I just feel like there, there's a lot of political noise, and it, it just seems like the biggest issue that we face, which is probably poverty, is very under discussed, Mark. Oh, for sure. And, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why uh, we wrote the book. Um, is that it's such a you know it's such a critical issue. It, it seems to underlie so many things that we're concerned about in society. And so, um, yeah, so that's that was kind of the idea behind writing the book. And how many poor people are there in America? I mean, I, I saw that you you know your research shows that for the first time ever, a majority of Americans will experience poverty at some point in their life. But how many people are technically poor? In the United States, yeah. So it's a great question. It really kind of depends on how you define it. If if we say how many people fell below the poverty line, the official poverty line in the United States, um, last year it was around ten and a half percent of the population, about thirty four million people. But as you said. That's just one point in time. And a lot of my work is focused on what's the actual risk across the lifetime of experiencing poverty. And if we do that, we find that about three quarters of Americans at some point will spend a year in poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this 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 idea of the poverty line is always been kind of, I don't know, just a strange one to me. I mean, I guess you have to find some way to define it, but it just there's just some arbitrary line which says like if you're, you know, if you earn one dollar more than this, you are not poor. If you earn one dollar less than this, you're not poor. But is the difference between that doesn't seem that meaningful uh, to me. So like, how does the how does the poverty line, who decides what it is and and what is it? Well, that's a it's that's a very it's a very technical question and. Um, Basically, the idea is that if you fall below that line, you really don't have the income or the resources to purchase those things necessary kind of for a minimally adequate life. And so you don't have enough money for food, for shelter, these kinds of things. And I would say that the way that we calculate poverty officially in the United States is actually very, very conservative. Um, That if you if you ask Americans where that line should be, it's actually much higher. In fact, it's it's often twice as high as the official poverty line. So a lot of folks are along the lines of what you're saying that um, that the way we calculate poverty is is very very conservative. And you know, I live in Los Angeles, where um, obviously there's tons of really wealthy people, uh, a lot of celebs. I see their houses, um, but there's also a ton of homeless people, um, desperately poor people, and and then a lot of people you just see that are living like right on the edge. Um, and it strikes me as it seems like it seems like one of these problems that is sold to the population is kind of intractable, like that there's no solution to it. Um, but I don't know. There seems to be plenty of money to go around, uh, at least where, where I'm sitting. Um, what what drives poverty, and and how can we fix it? Well, um, you know, you're you're right that um, 
if we if we compare you know if we compare the United States with other countries, the United States has much higher rates of poverty than these other countries. And the question is the question is why is that? We have the resources. We're not a poor country. We have the resources to do something about that, but we don't. And the and and one of the things that we focus on in the book is that in the United States we really don't have the political will to address poverty. Now, why is that? One of the reasons is because of the way we look at the causes of poverty. We look at poverty often as an individual failing rather than as a structural failing. So if we look at poverty from a structural failing, we can say, look, we're not producing enough jobs that pay a decent wage. We're not producing jobs that have benefits. And so as you said in LA, you've got wide inequality. You've got people on both ends. But the folks in the middle over the last 30 or 40 years have really been suffering and have really become much more vulnerable. So as I said before, if we look across a period of time, we find that a majority of Americans will experience poverty. Is poverty in America getting worse? It's actually, um, in some ways, it's kind of remained the same over a long period of time. So in any given year, between 10 and 15% of the population is in poverty. Um, it tends to go up during worse economic times. It tends to come down a bit during better economic times. But it, it remains at that level. But if again, if you compare the United States with other countries, our poverty rates tend to be about twice as high as um, as many of these other countries. Mm. And a lot of your do with inequality. And I remember when Barack Obama said that inequality was the greatest challenge of our time. Um, and the response to the sort of inequality discourse from a lot of people, especially on the right, is that why, why do you care about inequality? Like, this, it doesn't matter how rich the rich are, as long as like kind of everyone else is getting rich. What's your view on that? On whether inequality is bad in and of itself, or kind of as long as you're, you know, raising up the level of the poor, then there's no big deal with inequality. Yeah, a couple things in terms of that. First of all, wide inequality actually has some pretty serious societal consequences. So if you look at the health of the society, the more inequality there is, the less healthy that society is on a number of different variables. So if you ask yourself, you know, why does the United States have the highest rates of incarceration in the world? You know, why do we have some of these things? A lot of it has to do with inequality. And the other thing that I think is really important here is that the United States has always been about equality of opportunity, not necessarily equality of outcome. But the problem is when you have more and more inequality of outcome, wider income inequality, that affects equality of opportunity. And the simplest way to see that is just look at the school districts in any any area in the United States. You find here in St. Louis, for example, in the suburban areas, some really great school districts. You go 20 minutes to the city and you find some school districts that are, are really struggling. And to say that there's equality of opportunity is just a joke. And so if we think about the core American values that everybody should have a chance to get ahead, that's no longer the case. And I think that's very troubling whether you're on the left or on the right. Mm. Yeah, because like one of the things people say, yeah, we may have more poor people in America, but it, that's because we allow more social mobility. You know, you can rise up and you anyone in America 
can become a millionaire if they get, you know, if they work hard or if they or if they get lucky or or whatever. Um, is that really the case, or is that kind of a misconception? It is a misconception. So the for the feeling for a long period of time was that just as you said, there's, you know, it, maybe inequality um, is not such a bad thing because people can move up and down. It turns out that the United States has much less economic mobility than in many of the other sort of high economy countries. And one of the reasons, imagine this, the rungs on the ladder in terms of the income distribution have been getting further apart, making it harder for people to climb up that ladder. And so, um, and so that's one of the reasons why you know, we have much less economic mobility. Um, the other thing that, you'll, that you see is that you know, we're, we're famous for talking about rags to riches. And there's always some people that rise from rags to riches, but that's a very small minority of the cases. Um, and so only about 5% of, um, of folks that are, um, are, are, are growing up in the bottom sort of 20% of the population actually make it to the top. So it's, it's a very, very small percentage. And it's actually been getting smaller over the last 40 years. Um, and you had a meeting with President Joe Biden, new president, fresh, fresh, young President Joe Biden. If you had, <laughs> um, you had his ear and he would listen to you, what would you tell him to do to alleviate poverty? Well, first of all, what I would say to him is that if you look, and and this is something that that I have focused on, if you look at what childhood poverty costs the United States economically, a conservative estimate is approximately $1 trillion a year. We spend a huge amount on the fallout of poverty rather than dealing at the front end of the problem. And so what I would say is let's have some programs um, that provide decent paying jobs, which I think President Biden is very much attuned to, the idea of getting the minimum wage up to at least $15. Um, let's get some programs that invest in, in human potential and childhood sort of development. These are the kinds of things that for every dollar we spend on those kind of programs, we save seven or $8 down the road. So that's the kind of thing I would be talking about. And I think that he is actually um, quite attuned to that. All right, All right. Well, Mark, Professor, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate your work and, and your time here today. It's a fascinating discussion about, like you said, the most important issue that for some reason is kind of constantly ignored. Well, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Welcome back to the conversation. I am your host, Nando Vila. I'm very excited to speak to our next guest, Brendan O'Connor. Brendan is a freelance journalist based in New York City, and he's the author of a new book, which is tearing up the charts, Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. Unfortunately, or rather fortunately, as you say, a very timely book. Brendan, how are you? I'm all right, thanks for having me on, Nando. So your book is about how nativism fuels the right. So I guess my first question is, so how does nativism fuel the right? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I chose nativism as the framework to try to understand what is happening on the far right. Uh, during the Trump administration, but really in the 
years and decades running up to the Trump administration because I thought that it would be a useful lens and framework to understand the way that race and labor and capital and nationhood all intersect and kind of build off of one another. Um, And it seems to me that nativist impulses and currents are really central to what is driving the far right right now. Um, And I think will continue to be central in the years to come as the ongoing crises of capitalism, of democracy, of the climate, of the economy all continue to collide and escalate. Um, and I think that nativism is going to be continue to be a really animating uh, political dynamic. Yeah, it strikes me as obviously we have Trump in the United States, but we've also seen almost in a more clear way because of the multi-party systems in Europe, how specifically the issue of of immigration is just great fodder for the far right. I mean, many of these kind of far right parties in Europe are explicitly anti-immigrant, even in a way that the that the Republican Party doesn't even doesn't even quite go to, at least sort of rhetorically and openly. Um, why is it such a uh, powerful issue for the far right? What 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 tool does it serve um, in the current system? Yeah, so I think as as you observe, you know, in European parties and in other parts of the world, right wing parties or the the coalitions that exist within the Republican Party in the United States are kind of broken out. And so the constitutive parts are made much more explicit. I think in the US what we've seen over the course of really the past (laughs) century and a half, but in a way that it has accelerated in the past half a century or so, is that while Capital and the ruling class continue to cultivate and encourage anti-immigrant sentiment, um, and they are, they do this as a way, simply put, to create the political con- conditions for a hyper-exploitable, hyper-oppressed layer of the ruling class. And I'm talking about migrant labor generally and undocumented labor specifically. Um, this these impulses and this political tendency in recent years in the US and elsewhere has kind of taken on its own momentum and has kind of escaped in certain ways kind of the orbit of capital dominated politics i don't that's maybe overstating a little bit but this mm. this this conflict and this um you know, this kind of uh, clash of interests is what my book is exploring. Yeah, I mean, because it, it strikes me as if you if you go to your average plutocrat, your average Jeff Bezos, um, and you ask him about immigrants, he's probably, you know, he probably answers like, no, they're great, I love them, you know, all that stuff. Um, but on the other hand, uh, as the neoliberal era kind of took root uh, in the 80s and 90s, we started to see a turn towards a uh, much more restrictive immigration mm-hmm. policies in the United States, starting with the Clinton administration, through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, and of course through the Trump administration. Um, that even as um, capital becomes more dominant 
in our politics and you would think that they would like, you know, oh, hey, I'll come in. Yeah, free, cheap labor. Um, the, the restrictions on immigration have become much harder at the same time. So it just mm -hmm. seems like an interesting tension, as you say. Yeah, it's it's definitely complicated. <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that in that same era, it's become much easier for capital to move around the world and to take advantage of and exploit cheap labor outside of the US. And in order to keep cheap labor in one place, it has to it has to keep that in, it has to fix it in place. That's where borders um, and militarized borders and heavily enforced borders become important to the kind of global capitalist regime. Um, that being said, there are industries domestically in the US that still rely on migrant labor and undocumented. Uh, migrant labor in agriculture, in construction and development, in the service industries. And so there are parts of the capitalist class that uh, are resistant, well, are resistant to a kind of total exclusion of migrant labor, but still benefit from the um, repression of migrant labor. What do you, what do you say to, People who make the point, well, if you if you have all this immigration, you know, you have this increased supply of workers, um, you'll have a downward pressure on wages because because you have all this influx of people, right? You have um, if you open the floodgates, they'll just come in uh, because their countries suck, and they're going to come to our country, and there's going to be a downward pressure on wages. Like, what what is the kind of like appropriate left response to something like that? So I think there's a couple of ways to respond to that. One being that, well, the answer to uh, the hyper exploitation of labor is not to align with the nativists, but to say that, well, yeah, we need stronger a stronger labor rights regime in this country. We need to empower workers to organize and uh, fight for their own interests and support them when they do so whether they are citizens or non-citizens. Um, but the other aspect of this is that the, the forces that are displacing people, that are putting people in a position where they have to choose to leave their homes are the forces of imperialism, the forces of neocolonialism, the forces of climate change, which is the, which is the consequence of capitalist activity. And so we have a, you know, on the left, there's a, a a strategic, um, you know, it's a strategic alignment of interests uh, that a, a migrant justice framework reveals, I think. Um, but there is also uh, a need to see that we are all <laughs> victims of different parts of the same system, um, and so there's no good in, uh, you know, denying. There's 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 no point in kind of obscuring that. You know, it's your your book was obviously very timely. Um, and uh, in my darkest moments, I think about what you just said about the climate crisis and how it drives uh, migration. And that as the climate crisis gets worse, we're just going to see much bigger migrations of people, or or at least um, and and that's just that's only going to fuel uh, 
more of this nativist right that you talk about, not just here, but all over all over the developed world. Um, how are you? How are you processing the current moment? Are you feeling bleak or are you feeling optimistic? In the I mean, you know, your book's doing well, so that feels good. But <laughs> beyond that, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't know how well. It's, I mean, I know my friends like it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how well it's doing. Well, well you're on TYT, man. This is the biggest. I'm at, yes, uh, I'm, yes. Stan, thank YouTube, you for having me. I'm very uh, grateful. Network in the world. <laughs> um, how am I feeling? Um, I I think that you're right. I think that there is a a very dark future on the horizon. Um, I think that the storming of the U.S. Capitol and congressional buildings um, is not the end of something, but is a sign of things to come. Um, but I also think that we are in just as we are in a period of a kind of what I identify as a, a nascent fascist movement. We're also in a period of left wing an upsurge of left wing organizing and um, a kind of clarity of purpose in movements for liberation of workers and the poor and oppressed people, not just in the US, but around the world. And so I think that there are a lot of possibilities on the horizon, some very dark, yes, mm. um, but many much brighter than that. Um, and so I think that I think that the future is open, and that it's up to us to, you know, make the future that we want. Sounds like the center cannot hold. It's either going to be <laughs> fascists or us on the left. Brendan O'Connor, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Um, everyone, go out and check out Brendan's book. Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. Thanks, Nando. Thank you. All right, everyone, take it easy and until the next time on The Conversation.